So tonight we're going to be continuing on. If you've been here last several times I've spoken, um, you know we've been doing a little bit of a series in the book of Colossians. And so we're going to continue on with that. Um, so today we're, tonight we're going to be picking up in Colossians chapter 1 and verse, uh, 20, or, uh, verse 24. And if you want to go ahead and start turning there, we'll get there in just a few moments. So as you turn there, I have a couple questions I want you to think about. If you supervise people, how do you motivate them? Or if you don't supervise people, what does your supervisor do to motivate you in your job? As I was preparing, I wrote down a few that I'd like to share with you guys for tonight. Uh, first one I came up with was uh, praising people. You know, catching people doing good things and recognizing them for it. Also thought about encouraging people, you know, when people are, are struggling in their work, you know, coming alongside of them and uh, giving them a, a word of encouragement to brighten their day. Uh, another one I thought of was to show people their value. You know, sometimes people just kind of feel like they're a cog in a wheel doing a repetitive process over and over and over again. But if you can show them how they add value to the company, if you show them their stake in the company, sometimes that can be motivating for them. Uh, another one I thought of was asking people something, asking people to do something that they're able to do. There's nothing more demotivating than being asked to do something you can't do, and then when your eval rolls around, getting held accountable for not doing what you couldn't do, right? Um, enthusiasm, uh, you know, working for someone, working for a boss that is enthusiastic can be motivating. Um, how about money? Money can be motivator, right? It, you know, if you have bills to pay, it could be what motivates you to kind of get out of bed in the morning and go to work so you can pay your bills. You know, it could also be an incentive. You know, if, if, you, if you're a boss, you know, you might be able to offer an incentive or if you sell 25 widgets, you'll get a bonus, right? Gives them an incentive not to give up at 20. But it's interesting in, in, the, in the context of the church, specifically with money, that the church doesn't tend not to have enough money to hire people to do everything that we need to do. And yet there's a ton of work that needs to be done. So uh, how do we, or why would somebody want to give of their time, to give of their energy, to give of their, their money, to give of whatever in order to get those things done? What motivates them to do that? What would motivate you to do that? And I get it. Most of us are here on Wednesday night, so we're already more uh, motivated than most people, right? And it's not, we're not just coming on Sunday mornings. But how do we motivate others that perhaps only come to one service? How do we get them involved? Part of me would say, well, we should just tell them about all the positive things about, uh, about volunteering. You know, and maybe that would motivate them. Tell them how wonderful it is. Tell them how easy it is. And uh, people are so easy to get along with. And Pastor CJ provides sweets and desserts at every staff meeting and uh, all this other stuff. But you guys wouldn't fall for that, would you? Because you guys have been around too long. You've been involved too much. A newbie. They might fall for it. But it wouldn't take them long to learn better, would it? Paul, I think, understood this. If there's a person that knew real ministry, it was the Apostle Paul. He worked in ministry when things were up, whenever he was uh, uh, telling people about Jesus and people were coming to know the Lord and he was planting churches throughout his, his ministry and discipling people. But he also served when things weren't so great, when things were down. At one point in his ministry, he was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times. 
He was bitten by a poisonous snake. And he spent the last five years of his life in a Roman prison. And yet he still chose to work in ministry. So how would a person like Paul motivate people? Well, that is what we're going to take a look at tonight. So we are going to pick up in verse 24. And I think it's kind of fascinating what uh, what Paul says here. He says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read through that, it's full of all sorts of complexities. I mean, we look at that first part about him rejoicing and suffering, and we're like, that's kind of tough. And then we read that second part, and we're like, what does that even mean, right? So let's, let's start by just breaking it down a piece at a time tonight and see if that can help us understand what Paul is trying to say here. So it starts out by saying, I rejoice. And Paul says he rejoices. And what is he rejoicing? He rejoices in suffering. And that doesn't really sound too easy, does it? So I thought maybe this word rejoice has some, some other meanings. So I decided to put my, uh, all my, my almost three years at Arsalom training to good use. And so I looked up that word in the Greek, and it's the word chero. I was like, all right, what does this word mean? So I looked over at the definition, and guess what it means? To rejoice. That's right, years of study. Now I'll admit to you, there's, there's part of me that, that was hoping that there would be something else there. But it says to rejoice. And then to rejoice is to, to have great joy or to, to delight or to be ecstatic about something. And another way that we can understand the meaning of a Greek word is that we can look, about, look at how it's used in, in other passages from the same time period. And it can sometimes give us a hint about what the author might have been thinking about when he used a particular word. And so I looked up a few uh, other places in the New Testament where it uses this, this Greek word chiro. I'd like to share a few of those with you tonight. The first one I found was in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 10. Many of you will know this story. It's the story of, of the Magi coming to see baby Jesus. And they follow the star and eventually leads them to, to, to Jerusalem where Jesus is at. And it says that when, they, when the star had led them there, that they were chiro, that they were overjoyed when the star had led them to Jesus. And so the Magi, they were overjoyed, they were delighted, they were ecstatic that the star had led them to baby Jesus. And wouldn't you be also? The next one I found was in Matthew 18 and verse 12. You're probably familiar with this one as well. It's the parable of the lost sheep. In in this one, the the, the shepherd is tending his, his sheep and one of the sheep wanders off. And the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one sheep that had wandered off. And guess what? When he finds that sheep, it says that he was chiro, that he was happy, that he was delighted, that he was ecstatic, that he had found his lost sheep. Think about it last time you lost something and you searched and you searched and you searched and you found it. How excited were you that you found it? The next one I, I stumbled across was in John 20, 20. And this is uh, a story about Jesus. It was after his death and his resurrection. And all the disciples were huddled, huddled together in a room that says that the door was locked. But somehow Jesus walked up among them and he said, peace be with you. And it says that the disciples were chiro, that they were overjoyed when they saw him. They were ecstatic to see Jesus alive. 
And so if we look at what, what Paul is saying here in this verse, in, in light of those contexts, is saying that Paul's not saying, yay, sarcastically, yay, I, I, I rejoice in my suffering. But instead, he's saying that he's overjoyed in his suffering, as overjoyed as, as the, the, the magi were to find baby Jesus. He's ecstatic, as ecstatic as a shepherd was to find his lost sheep. He is as delighted, as delighted as the disciples were to see their best friend alive. That is the level of rejoicing that Paul is talking about here. And what is he rejoicing about? It says, now I rejoice in what I suffer for you. He's saying, I'm ecstatic about my suffering. So if, if the word joy doesn't mean something else in the Greek, maybe the word suffering does, right? So I decided to be diligent and look that one up in the Greek too. And, and guess what? It means suffering. That's right. And so I applied the same technique, looking at where else in the, in the New Testament is, is that Greek word used. And I noticed a trend as I started looking at them. Not every time, but just about every time. It was used in relationship to Jesus' suffering. So when Paul is talking about suffering here, he's ta talking about, I, I got a splinter in my finger type of suffering. He's not talking about, I stubbed my toe on a table in the middle of the night type of suffering. He's not even talking about, I fell down and broke my leg and was laid out for six weeks type of suffering. He's talking about excruciating suffering. Excruciating suffering like, like Jesus being whipped and beaten by a Roman soldier within an inch of his life. Excruciating suffering like Jesus being nailed to a cross. And so Paul is saying here, I rejoice in my excruciating suffering. Well, maybe he means it metaphorically. But, it, but, but then if we, we read on in the, in the next section, it says that now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh. Well, if he's filling up in his flesh and it's about his flesh, then it's not a metaphor. It's not an illusion. This is actual suffering, actual pain. And it's all in the midst of serving in ministry. So Paul says that he rejoices. So just checking in, how are we doing so far? So Paul's recruiting posters up here, and it says, come and volunteer at New Song Church, where we rejoice in our sufferings. Any, any takers? Okay. Well, I guess not. I guess we better keep going. So uh, let's, let's keep going on. So, so as we look uh, a little bit further, it says, Now I rejoice in what I suffer for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking uh, in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. Congratulations, we've just read probably one of the most controversial verses I've come across in the New Testament. There's got to be at least 50 different views about what this verse is talking about. Um, so I'm not going to put you guys to sleep tonight by covering all 50 of those with you. Uh, but I, but uh, I, there, as I was studying, I came across one I think is worth sharing. There's some I think we can dismiss outright. Um, there's some people who, who take the verse to mean that somehow what Jesus did on the cross didn't 100% take care of everything, and Paul and us, that we have to suffer somehow in order to make up what was somehow lacking. But they, if, if you read on in chapter 2, it's, it's pretty obvious that Paul is saying that, that what Christ did on the cross was 100%. 
And so I think it's pretty obvious that what Paul is talking about here is not that, that it's something else. But there's another, uh, another, um, there's another argument about what this verse means that I, I think is pretty convincing. And it's talking about, uh, it's talking, Paul says that it's, it's more about Paul joining in with Christ's suffering. So when it says, now I, rejoice, now I rejoice in what I suffer for you, and I fill up in my flesh, and I fill up in my flesh. They would say that when, that word there in the Greek for the word fill up, that it, it could be better or more literally translated as participate, or to join in, or to be a part of. And so what it was talking about here is being a part of Christ's suffering, joining in or participating in Christ's suffering. So it's not that Christ's suffering on the cross was somehow lacking, but instead that we're joining in with that sacrifice. And if you think about it, in some ways, that kind of makes sense. There's other verses in the Bible that talk about us joining in with Christ's suffering. I, I think about uh, Mark uh, 13, 13, where it says, and everyone will hate you because of me. And everyone will hate you because of me. And Jesus is saying that, 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 if, that if, you, if you know me, if you stand by me, and I am hated, then you too will be hated. Think of it this way. If you're at an archery range and you choose to stand down by the target while people are shooting at the targets, sooner or later, you're probably going to get hit. And so if you're choosing to stand up next to Jesus and people are shooting flaming arrows at him, sooner or later, you too are probably going to get persecuted. You too are probably going to get hated. And what about the, the Beatitudes in, in Matthew chapter 5? You know, Jesus is teaching, and he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed um, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful and the pure of heart, blessed are those that are peacemakers. But then he gets down to the very last one, and what's he say? Blessed are those that are persecuted. And you don't think Jesus just put that in there just in case, right? He knew that it was going to happen. If you live a godly life long enough, sooner or later, you too will probably face persecution. You too will probably suffer in some way, just as Christ uh, faced persecution and suffering. So Paul is saying here, I rejoice in my suffering because I'm participating with Christ in the suffering, in Christ's suffering. I rejoice in my suffering because that's what followers of Christ do. So congratulations. If you're a follower of Christ, this world will likely hate you. This world will likely try to persecute you in some way. So let's just check in again. It, Paul's recruiting poster, it says, uh, come and volunteer at New Song Church where we rejoice in our sufferings. So, and if you sign up, it's going to cause you great pain. Any takers? Okay, so I guess we better keep going. Well, Paul doesn't, uh, well, uh, maybe it's because we don't understand why Paul rejoices. So let's take a look at what Paul, uh, why it says Paul rejoices. It says there at the end of the verse, or let's just read the whole verse. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh uh, that that which is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction, for the sake of his body, for the sake of his body, which is the church. And so the reason why he suffers 
is for the sake of the, his, his body, which is the church. Paul is saying there is meaning. There is purpose in this suffering. And, but notice it says that he, he doesn't, it's, it's not about himself. It's, it's about others. He's saying that he doesn't volunteer because it benefits himself. He doesn't volunteer because it makes him feel better. And it's not because he gets snacks at every staff meeting. It's not because he gets a whole bunch of that of boys. But it's primarily because of others. Paul's willingness to work for the gospel is limitless. And he's willing to volunteer. And when things are going good, he's willing to volunteer. And when things are not going so well, he's willing to volunteer. Even to the point of volunteering and, and ministry when he's in jail as under a Roman soldier. The, the last verse of Colossians talks about Paul. He says, don't, uh, don't forget my chains. And these are literal chains that he's talking about. Sometimes it's easy for us to overlay our culture on, on things and, and think about just Benton County Jail and you, know, you get three hots and a cot down there and there's heating and there's air conditioning, right? But Paul was spending all day shackled all day in chains, chained to a Roman soldier, no privacy, no heating, no air. And yet he chose to volunteer still. So why should we endure suffering that, that might come for the sake of the gospel? Why should we be willing to do what Paul is willing to do? Well, I think Paul gives us three reasons in the rest of uh, in the rest of this chapter that I'd like to take a look at in the time that we have left tonight. Three reasons why it is worth, in spite of the pain, in spite of knowing that pain might come up front, that we, might, that we should still volunteer. So Paul's saying here, there's no bait and switch. I'm telling you the cost up front. So consider the cost. But even with those costs, I think there's still three reasons why you should volunteer. And so the first one is, you will succeed. You will succeed. If you decide to give yourself wholeheartedly into ministry, you will succeed at that ministry. Let's take a look at uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses uh, 24 or 25 to 26. It says, I have become a servant by the, commission, uh, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for all ages and generations, but is, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Note particularly how Paul begins this section. He says, I, am a, I have become a servant. And who's he become a servant to? A servant to the church, a church's servant. And it goes on to say, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul is saying, I do this because God has commissioned me to do it. And do you remember when Paul was commissioned? It was on the um, uh, Damascus Road in Acts chapter 6. He's riding along and he's going off to persecute some Christians. And God has the audacity to interrupt his journey and knock him off the horse and blind him. And right there, he, he, he becomes an apostle. He was not an apostle up to that point because he never met Jesus. But he meets Jesus. And God gives him everything that he needed to be an effective apostle. And that's what he's saying here. I have become a servant by the commission of God. And God, picking back up in verse 25, gave me 
gave to me to present to you the, the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden. Paul is saying, one thing that I can do, Paul is saying, is I can preach. One thing I can do is teach. And yes, he could preach. And yes, he could teach. And guess what? You and I have all been commissioned as well, just like Paul. We have been selected for a particular ministry to serve in. And we have been gifted to serve in that ministry. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not all called to be uh, preachers and teachers like Paul. But we've all been selected and gifted for a unique ministry within the church. We really have. Every person in here tonight. And Paul is saying here, I do this because I have been commissioned by God, by Jesus. For, for this specific task. And he says, guess what? When I do that, I enjoy that task. I enjoy doing it. And I'm able to rejoice in it. And because he is gifted in the task, God has given him the gifts to complete that task. God has given him a commission that he is able to fulfill because he has gifted him to fulfill that commission. So that's what happened to Paul. And I would say that is what happens to all of us too. If you keep your finger here in Colossians, you want to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Starting in verse 1. I think it's interesting what, how it starts here. Now about these gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. So he's saying here, I want you to be in the know about this. I want you to know what's going on. And then skipping down to, to verse 4, it says... There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit that distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There's different kinds of working, but in all of them and in, ev and in every one, it is the same God at work. Did you notice that? It's saying that we all don't all have to be identical, that we're not all identical. But guess what? Regardless of the gift, regardless of the calling, all are important, all are critical, all are valuable. Let's continue on in verse 7. It says, now to, each, now to each one a manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a, a message of wisdom. To another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by, by, the, by that one Spirit. To another miraculous power. To another prophecy. To another distinguishing between spirits. To another speaking in different tongues. And to another interpretations of tongues. And all of these are the works of the one and the same Spirit. And He distributes them. He distributes each one just as He determines. What I find fascinating is I look at the different listings of the, of, the spirit, of the gifts of the Spirit that we can find in the New Testament is that no two are identical. All of them are slightly different, which I've always taken to understand that it means that there's a whole host of different types of gifts that God can give us. But it says that each one, but, but to each one, a manifestation of the Spirit has been given. To each one, a manifestation of the Spirit has been given. So if you're a believer tonight, you have been given a manifestation of the Spirit, a gift of the Spirit. 
The moment you became a Christ follower, he commissioned you and he equipped you for to serve in at least one area of ministry. And there's nothing better than being able to do what he is being able to do what he has called you to do, what he has designed you to do. Let me see if, if I can demonstrate this a little bit. Let me put a picture up here. Does anybody know what that is? Anybody? This, this is a very uh, special tool. I'll give you a hint. It's not a paperweight. I mean, you could use it as a paperweight, but it's not really what it's designed for. See that top part there where there's kind of a little bit of a, a diagonal notch? That's for turning off a, a gas meter. And the two little prongs at the bottom are for turning off a water meter. So it's a very special tool. Wouldn't be very good at, say, making bread. I mean, sure, you could probably mix the dough with it, but it probably wouldn't do it very well. But if you ever have an emergency at your house and need to turn off the gas, that tool can come in very handy. If you ever have a leak at your house and you want to turn it off before your house floods, that tool could come in very handy and handle it just fine. This tool can't do everything well, but it can do a few things well. How about an easier one? Everybody know what these are? Ten snips? How many of you know they're not scissors? If, you, if, you, if all you have are 10 snips to complete your, your art project for school, for cutting something out, you're probably not going to get a very good grade, right? But on the other hand, if you're putting a roof on a church across the town, a metal roof, these come in handy, and they'll do the job just fine. But you know what these aren't very good at? They're not very good at turning off gas lines. They're not very good at turning off water lines. Think back to the first one. It's, it's not very good at cutting metal, right? I mean, I guess you could take it and like whack your way through the metal, but it would sure make for a very long day. Each one of these tools is different. And each one can do, it can do its own thing very well. And each one is valuable in its own way. And each one will succeed if you, if you assign it to the right task. But when you try to use it as it's not designed, that's when you run into problems. And the same thing is true with, with you or I. God has given us abilities. God has given us gifts. God has given us knacks to do certain things. And if, and if, we, um, if, we, if we follow our commission and we volunteer and we use our gifts, we too will succeed in using those gifts in the way that he has called us to use them. You will be successful because God has designed you in a specific way to complete a specific task that he has commissioned you to do. I don't know about you, but in some ways that's, that's encouraging to me because he's not, he says he's not going to ask us to do something that he hasn't gifted us to do, that he hasn't given us the ability to be able to do it. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul's not saying here it's going to be easy. Paul's not say, Paul is not promising easy. He's just promising effective that you will be effective in that ministry. So, so that leads us to the question, what is your gift? How do you discover your gift? Or if, if you think you know what your gift is, how do you know if that's actually your gift? Well, I think uh, part of uh, well, I think it should come naturally to you. I think it should be easy for you. I think that's part of, of, of what makes... What, 
part of uh, what a spiritual gift is. It's, it's something that you'd be willing to do week in and week out, and it doesn't drain you, but instead it energizes you. Think of it this way. When you're at work, is there a, is there a task that you would want that you would do that you would can think of a million and one things that you would want to do instead of that one task? And you, you every time that that task comes up, you just want to do you, everything else besides that one task. I know that I have things like that in, in my job. And let me tell you that that is probably not your gift whatever that thing is. Now, don't get me wrong. When your boss comes to you and says, you put it off long enough, you need to hurry up and do it, and they may come back and say, you know, you did a great job on this. But if it feels like torture when you're doing it, it's probably not your spiritual gift. But the things that come naturally to you, things that you enjoy doing, usually there's something in there that, it, that can point you to your, your God-given ability. So Paul is saying back in Colossians, one, uh, one reason why it's worth the pain of serving in ministry to limitly, limitlessly give of yourself for the cause of, of, of Christ and service into the church, one of those reasons is that you will succeed. God has custom made you to do. God has custom made you with a gift to do that work. And God has given us all different gifts because New Song doesn't need just one gift. We need all of them. We don't just need hands. We don't just need feet. We need the whole body, even the parts that might be considered lesser. Because if you neglect those lesser parts long enough, you'll learn why they're important. The second reason that, that Paul says that, that, that it's worth serving in ministry is that the... Is, is that the message that we bring is transformational. The message that we bring is transformational. It doesn't matter what ministry you serve in, we all have the same message that we have, that we're trying to get out, that we're helping to get out. And that message is transformational. Let's take a look at uh, verse 28. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28. He says, he is the one we proclaim, admonish and, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So a lot of, there's a lot of we's in there. He's saying we proclaim, admonish, and teach. We present. So who's the we? The we is, is the body of Christ. And so the, the whole body doesn't have the, the gift of preaching, but we all support it. We all contribute to getting that message out. So at any given Sunday at the new building, there's going to be people, hopefully, that are out in the parking lot greeting people as they arrive at the building, making people feel welcome from the minute they get on the property. There's going to be ushers at the door, hopefully, that, that'll, that'll greet the people and help them to find their seats so they don't have to stand up in the foyer for the whole service. There's going to be people that stock the coffee bar, people that serve on the worship team. All are important for supporting the work of, of getting the message of the message out. There's going to be those that serve in, in children's ministry, uh, giving the children a clear message of the gospel, and also helping uh, the parents not have to keep their kids quiet in church and have to worry about keeping the kids quiet and miss out the, on the message themselves. There's going to be those that hopefully serve in, in the sound booth. Important ministry 
Because there's people in the back row that are going to want to hear, but if there's no one to turn on the, the mic, it's going to be hard for them to hear. There's going to be people that take out the trash. If you don't think that one's important, well, it's neglected for three or four weeks, and you'll see how long the visitors stay with the smell in the building. But all together, we all have the same corporate goal. We're all trying to accomplish the same thing. That is to proclaim Christ, the message of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And this message is transformational. I mean, who do you walk by on a daily basis, at school, at work, on the street corner, that couldn't benefit by hearing the message of Christ? No one, right? The message is transformational, and it will literally change their life. Spiritually, it will take them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, literally transforming their eternity. But it doesn't just affect them in the sweet by and by. It affects them now and the nasty now and now. People that become Christians tend to have better attitudes. They can find peace. Oftentimes, drug addictions are, are broken. They tend to find that they love people more. They tend to be better employees, better spouses. So it doesn't just affect their eternity, but it also affects their now. Isn't it good to have a, a good, good product to sell? A product that everybody in the world truly needs. It reminds me of a quote I heard. It's a, it's a quote by uh, Steve Jobs. And he said it back in 1993. And he, was, he was trying to convince John Scully to leave a small little company called Coca-Cola and come and help him start a company called Apple. And why should he do that? I mean, Coca-Cola is a, is, a, is a large company, and it's stable, and he's wanting to come to a tiny little upstart company. And Steve says to him, do you want to sell sugar water the rest of your life, or do you want to come with me and change the world? Now, I think Steve probably oversold himself a little bit. I don't think Apple's going to change the world. I mean, it, it did change the industry with the invention of the, the iPhone. You know, it changed the, the phone industry as we know it. But I don't think it's going to change the world. But the gospel, on the other hand, the gospel can change the world because it is transformational. So let me ask you, do you want to sell sugar water the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? Because we have a message that can change the world. Because it is the message of the gospel of Jesus. And that is why Paul said, that is why Paul said that he is custom made. He is, he is made exactly to do what God has called him to do. And it energizes him. And that message that he was sharing was not just relevant to them back then it is also relevant today because that message has an eternal significance the message has an eternal significance the ministry that that you do in the church is still as relevant to everyone today as as it was back then and it still has an eternal significance let's take a look at uh, verses 29 through chapter 2, verse 3. It says, To this end, I, I um, strenuously contend with all the, the energy that Christ, so, 
Yeah, sorry, try that again. To this end, I strenuously to contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully worked in me. I want you to know, I, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all those that have not met me personally. My goal, my goal is that they may be encouraged in the heart and unified in love so that they may be full of the riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. <clears throat> and so Paul is saying, Paul is saying, I'm, I'm giving myself away because I'm building the church. I'm not building Apple, not building General Motors, not building Walmart, not building any other institution. I'm building the church. You see, there's coming a day when Apple stock won't matter anymore. There's coming a day when General Motors won't be around. But when will the church cease? Never. I don't know about you, but I want to invest my life. I don't, I don't know what you want to invest your life in, but I want to invest my life in something that lasts for eternity. But I see a lot of people investing their lives in, in things of, that are temporary, the short term. Investing in their careers, investing in their possessions, investing in fill in the blank. Things of this world are, are the mo things that are most important to them. They're more worried about their interests. It's like people building a, a sandcastle on the beach. They can look impressive until the tide comes in. And then they're gone. I don't want to build in the sand. I want to spend my life on something that stays. And so tonight, I would encourage you to do the same thing. And I'm not just talking to the people that might feel that they're called into full-time ministry. This is true for everyone. Because everyone has a gift. Some are more visible than others but all are necessary for the sake of the church. And all are used by God in the development of the church. So I'm going to start wrapping up here. Ken, if you want to go and come back. And you have an incredible opportunity to be a part of building the church because you are custom made so that you, so that you can help build the church also. He has given you a message to speak to people and he has given you a commission to help others speak the message as well so that, and, and that message, it transforms lives. It transforms societies. It can literally transform the whole world. And that transformation is not just for today and then gone tomorrow, but it's here forever. That's one of the best parts that I like about reading the book of Revelation. It's the part where, where we all gather around the, the throne. And it says there's people there from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And who are all those people? It's the church. And the church will live on for eternity. And there will be people there that say, hey, I'm here because Paul planted that church. I'm here because Paul discipled Timothy, and Timothy led me to the Lord. 
that is the goal, to build a church that will never pass away. And that is why Paul does ministry. That is why Paul rejoices. He rejoices that he can be part of it all. Because, you know, he had gotten it so, so, so wrong, right? He got it so wrong that he was killing Christians. But Jesus came to him and said, I don't care about your past. I want to save you now. I want to call you now. I want to gift you now. I want you to help build a church that will last for eternity. And so Paul rejoiced in spite of the pain, in spite of the struggles in ministry. Because no one, no one said serving in ministry was easy, just exciting, just important and enduring. And that is the opportunity that he gives. That's the opera, that's the challenge that I would like to give you tonight. Here in a few weeks, you know, we're gonna be moving over to the new building. And there's plenty of areas where, where people can get involved. And I would encourage you tonight, and here in a minute we're gonna have a time of prayer. I'd like to pray and ask God how He would have you help and volunteer at the new building. How He would have you get, get, get involved. What has He gifted you for? What gifts has He given? And if you're already involved in ministry, great. But pray for others to get involved as well. There's plenty of people that just come on Sunday morning but can be valuable members of the church if they get involved. He has gifted you. And, and, and he has gifted you because you are custom made to do something, to do your calling. The message that you will help get out will transform lives and you will help build a church that will last for eternity. So I'm going to pray and then just go for the altars and spend a few minutes in prayer and then Ken's going to close us out. So Father, we're, we're wowed, Lord, that, that you would choose to use people like us, that you would choose to use people like Paul. Father, maybe not be scared off by the pain and the angst and the challenges of ministry but maybe rejoice in those because of the opportunities that we have to be used by you, to share your name, to see lives transformed, to see the church built that will last for eternity. Lord, we thank you in advance for all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the altars are open. Just spend a couple minutes in prayer before we close out tonight. Here I stand, Lord my.